HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome the 2021 recipient of the Julia Child Award, Tony Tipton Martin. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Tony about what the award means to her, recognizing African-American culinary contributions, and we'll hear Tony's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. It's who Julia was, what she stood for, and what she accomplished, particularly as a role model, that in turn inspired the creation of the Julia Child Award itself. The Foundation's trustees wanted to not only spotlight, but lend further support to those following in Julia's footsteps in the American food world. As lofty as the criteria are, Finding someone who embodies all that Julia did as an educator, communicator, innovator, mentor, and bridge builder, while acting with independence, integrity, and public spirit, is a very high bar. Yet each year, the jury manages to select a person whose accomplishments rise above, often even above Julia's. The Julia Child Award was created by the Foundation to shine a light on those still in their prime, who are making a profound and significant difference in the way Americans cook, eat, and drink. The recognition comes with a $50,000 grant from the foundation to enable the recipient to further the work that matters most to them. You also get a beautiful engraved copper pan. This year, the jury selected multi-award-winning food journalist, historian, author, and soon-to-be PBS personality, Tony Tipton Martin as the seventh recipient. In selecting Tony, the jury recognized her work as a writer, editor, academic, and in particular, food justice warrior. Tony has long championed the study, appreciation, and awareness of African American food. She's also the first food writer to receive the award. In accepting the honor, Tony said, I wanted my work to reclaim African-American kitchen wisdom and make our cooking more accessible. It is in this same spirit that I look forward to using the Julia Child Award grant to inspire the next generation of food writers and chefs. Tony is the editor-in-chief of Cook's Country Magazine and the author of the award-winning books, Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking, and The Jemima Code, Two Centuries of African-American Cookbooks. 
Jubilee was published in 2019 and the Jemima Code in 2015. In 2005, Tony published a historic reprint of an early 20th century work, The Blue Grass Cookbook by Minnie C. Fox, containing the first known photographs of African-American cooks. The first African-American food editor at a major American newspaper, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Tony was twice invited to the White House by former First Lady Michelle Obama for her work helping families live healthier lives. Tony was honored by the Southern Foodways Alliance with the John Egerton Prize in 2014. She's appeared as a guest judge on Bravo's Top Chef, was featured on CBS Sunday Morning's annual food show, and in Netflix's High on the Hog series. She's been a featured speaker at the Library of Congress, many universities, and published in Best Food Writing of 2016. Tony is also the very first guest we've ever had on the podcast twice. If you'd like to hear our conversation with Tony about Jubilee, check out episode 69. She joins us today to talk about receiving the 2021 Julia Child Award and also about what she's working on now. Welcome back to the podcast, Tony. Thank you so much for having me, Todd, and thanks for that wonderful intro. My pleasure. It, I, I thought it was important that everyone know <laughs> how many things you have going on and tackle and have accomplished. And um, that feeds right into, you know, given all these things that you've been working very hard on and that are, you know, very near and dear to your heart. What does it mean to you to receive the Julia Child Award? Oh, this is probably one of the most important moments of my career. Um, this this degree of acknowledgement um, for my personal efforts um, is really very special. Um, most people know me for my advocacy for African-American cooks and um, primarily for authors of cookbooks. Um, and I very, very seldom talk about myself or how the various strands of my activities are connected to one another. Um, I've just appear to be really busy and have a very full career. Um, but what I really love is that this award acknowledges the way that all of the pieces of my work, all of my ambitions, have really become visible. Um, there's an awareness now that everything I've been doing, I've done it with intentionality and purpose. Um, these were not just arbitrary choices um, to elevate the next generation. And, and that's what Julia did. Um, and, and so of course, um, to receive an award in her name is, um, it's, just, it's just really a gift. Well, I love hearing that because that that is absolutely the foundation's intention is really, and I don't think we've talked to that, about that with another recipient. That it it's it is very true. That's much about the person and what not just what they've accomplished, but as you say, their intention and how that flows from from Julia's example to the present day. So, I, I love that you pointed that out and that that you feel that. Yeah, um, as a journalist, I have um, been primarily focused on the work of others um, to, to inspire um, more tolerance, more appreciation for food, um, an expanded view of what it means to cook African-American uh, dishes. And Julia really set out to do those same things. Um, so if there's anything that wasn't intentional, um, Initially, I guess it was in my realizing that I, in my love of watching her, I was actually being quietly mentored by her in a very private, intimate way. That's lovely, too. I was going to say that it's interesting, too. I think that you come from maybe as a starting place, this journalistic background. And, and I think we've talked before that you even started with maybe a I don't know if resistance is the right word, but an apprehension about being a food writer or food journalist versus a, you know, straightforward news journalist, because that was somehow not what you were brought up to pursue. Yeah, you know, this whole idea of my calling uh, my first book, The Jemima Code, is rooted in the dual identity and representation of African-American cooks in the 
in this country. Um, we've, we, the broader community has had a love-hate relationship with Black cooks. And as a result of that, we as a culture have struggled with this dual identity that says we are at once very competent and uh, our cooking can be viewed as expressions of um, incredible hospitality and quality. But at the same time, we've been disparaged and demoralized and our images degraded uh, in the public sphere. And so this confused identity, uh, I think, continues to persist, but certainly in my generation and the, those generations in, in my recent um, past, um, we struggled with whether to enter this field at all. Um, I think that's less, that's happening a lot less so today. Um, and if it is, it's for other types of concerns like, you know, financial finances and being paid one's worth. But for us, it was more about this message of what it meant to be involved in the food world and, and to be cooking for others and teaching other people to cook. Um, it's a very complicated, uh, difficult story to tell. And so I didn't grow up with this passion for telling food stories. Um, I didn't run to food cooking shows, although, you know, after school, Julia or Graham Care, you know, there were, there were folks on TV um, in my youth, but um, it, it wasn't really um, an aspiration for me until my college years. Yeah, and I think if you'll permit me, I'll spell it out a little bit more for audiences that may not be as up to speed, is that certainly in terms of African-American assimilation um, into mainstream society or being equal, the idea of choosing a career that had a, a deep association with service and service to others was, you know, had a certain incongruous feeling. You were going backward rather than forward. And that's it changed a lot. I think ironically, I was thinking that this sort of putting chefs on a pedestal, which really happened after Julia was on the scene and making them celebrities in some ways gave people of all walks of life more permission to pursue that cooking career because it had it was given more loft and legitimacy. Yes, of course it was, but there, the duality of the work continued to persist even then even within that structure of elevating uh, chefs and creating celebrity, because African-Americans were seldom considered in that role. Um, as you helped me point out, thank you. <laughs> um, African-Americans have always been viewed through history, through literature, through television and film as the servants, those who were taking instruction from their white mistresses or from their employers as domestic, when they were serving as domestics, um, but never the creators, not the people that were the knowledge holders. We were thought to be the people just following instructions mindlessly. And um, we as a community knew that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think the reality is the people on the ground knew that that was not true. But that was the way that we elevated one group above another uh, to say that, yes, history has said, yes, these African-American cooks did perform really well and contributed to our view of hospitality. But it's tragic that they did so without being particularly smart um, about it or having the um, technical knowledge um, that we associate with being classically trained. And so then that's what rolls into the modern day and celebrity chefs, because if, if African-Americans have not been attending culinary academy or um, elevated within restaurant structures to serve as executive chef, then we're still lingering in the lower uh, labor force um, associated with the preparation of food. Which is quite extraordinary because I was just thinking about the first Julia Child Award recipient, Jacques Pepin, who 
um, he might have gone to a culinary school, but he really learned to cook at the side of his mother and his aunt who ran restaurants in, in um, I believe it was Lyon. And that was the way that many of the people, particularly historically African-American cooks, were taught. They were taught by an older person, whether a relative or a mentor, which is a completely equally legitimate way um, to learn, particularly to, to cook, you know, dishes that are very personal or unique rather than just, you know, how to run a giant catering kitchen. Yeah, I think that's, um, that is all true. And history obviously is recorded um, in ways that benefit the, the recorder. And so you could just eliminate that level of discussion and not mention that <laughs> professional trained chefs also start with that as their um, inspiration and point of origin or whatever other variables are left out of the story um, when it comes to African-American participation. Um, and that's what I love so much about Julia's story uh, as I began to understand it better. Um, it's inspirational to, inspirational to me to know that she was an ordinary, if we can use that word without it being disparaging, but she was a simple housewife and she um, was educating herself uh, in, in French cuisine and, and improved, um, developed even more um, methodologies and techniques until she became the expert who then uh, transitioned all of that knowledge to other ordinary women, um, primarily um, in America. And that's what my ancestors were doing with their cookbooks and their um, recipe styles. They just weren't being given credit for it. And and for those who don't know that, that's one of the things that you really um, outline in the Jemima Code was also breaking those myths and giving recognition um, to a very long history of those contributions and the the deep legitimacy of those contributions and the deep under-recognition of them. I wanted to ask you, since the award very much, as you said, it recognizes your intention and your whole career and your whole person, but one of the things that that is significant and, and unique about your contributions are how you've been a driving force and adding to the American cultural understanding by amplifying African-American culinary history. But certainly, I think it's it's striking to me that since 2019, when Jubilee came out and had a wonderful reception, so much has transpired in terms of racial justice and social justice and equity since 2019 from the pandemic and the Black Lives Matters protests. I was curious if if that's changed your view of your findings or it's really just reinforced where you were like, yeah, that's what I was freaking saying. What's your, have, I mean, you've probably been too busy to look back, but I was just curious if, if you, how you feel looking from 2019, which was so recent, but yet so long ago. Well, I would love to go back to 2015 and I would say, yeah, that's freaking how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, you know, when we when I conceived of the idea of the Jemima Code, it was viewed as a multi-part project with, with where we are today as the end state. And that is the liberation of African-Americans of all kind from this narrow representation of the mammy cook or the slave cook or the servant cook. Uh, and to, to give the broader rest of the community freedom to appreciate our craft and our creative um, in whatever way we deem as creative and representative our, of our people. Um, African-Americans have been largely pigeonholed into this idea that all of our cooking descends from the slave cabin and there is some um, incredible intelligence associated with the idea that one could um, make sus healthy, sustainable, del delicious food from the, from the leavings of a main kitchen. <laughs> Be very careful with those words there. <laughs> uh, and not dwell on this idea that we're limiting this conversation to the plantation south, right? That 
that the, the notion is that African Americans were really good at handling garbage and master's leftovers and leavings from the kitchen. Um, but we've, we, well, and that story continued to persist all the way through, through the sixties and the notion of soul food, which is the food that the uh, migrants who left the South and moved into more uh, Northern cities for job opportunities um, in industry took those same kinds of foods with them. And there is certainly respect for the soul food canon and what was accomplished there. But as I alluded to earlier, there is a second message associated with African-American cooking. And it is when we recognize and acknowledge that second lane of black food that we are all set free. And so yes, today's, um, a, uh, interest in talking to people of all races and providing more voices in publications and on media platforms, the interest in publishing more Black books, um, Black or books by BIPOC authors, not just African-Americans here, um, but the fact that there's just so much more interest in in individuals um, as representatives of community is certainly, I think, tied to the fact that those two books, Jemima Code and Jubilee, set us free from, from the um, narrowly defined boundaries that kept us within soul, food, and servitude. Yeah, I'm struck by what you said, that there was a certain implication that there was also stasis, that like those things happened and then it just stood still, which is, of course, not at all what happened, and in that, in in many places, as uh, particularly African Americans and descendants of slaves migrated north and west, they continued cooking and they continued opening restaurants and they continued developing dishes through their own skills and knowledge, independent of others telling them. And that I think those stories are only beginning to be told in terms of like due credit and, you know, people maybe can name Leah Chase and Dookie Chases from New Orleans. But beyond that, she obviously had many, many cohorts who are not well known, but should be. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we have to remember that African-Americans were not immigrants to this country but we did do the best we could to survive in an immigrant um, fashion. And that is to say that when people migrate from another country, they bring their cultural ways with them. And this crazy history that we've be believed in all of this, these years expects us to believe that Africans who left West Africa did not bring any traditions with them, culinary or cultural. Um, now, there was a system in place that did its best to erase those and to ensure that we certainly did not display those publicly without threat to our lives. And so, of course, many of those techniques go underground. They're embedded in other dishes. They're embedded in the ways that we treat similar foods when we find them in our native and natural environments here in America. So. So it isn't just that um, we don't speak about the recipes that were created when people migrated and there wasn't anyone instructing them. What we also don't talk about is what kinds of knowledge our ancestors brought with them in their souls and embedded in the American food system. We just, we're, we're just now beginning to tease that out. Yeah, and certainly people with maybe proper scholarship of, of slavery and how plantations were run have understood or learned um, that this knowledge that you're talking about, that African um, slaves who were forcibly brought to the states brought with them and actually contributed to actually helping um, the other settlers who were free survive. And it was often their skills and knowledge of survival that helped the wider population survive. They just had no choice in whether they made their contribution or not. Yeah. And I think there's a zealousness on the part of everyone today that I, I does, that does concern me, um, that, um, we aren't, let me start over. 
rooting out these stories is really has been very difficult to do because the information is embedded in so many sources. It you really are like a um, it, it requires investigative skills. It involves scholarly research techniques, and basically, you're on a treasure hunt looking through various sources because those early scholars were not recording food traditions and food behaviors. Food was not really considered a topic that they were recording uh, as much. So we learn about other kinds of skills when we read um, historical representation of the Atlantic slave trade, but we don't often hear about um, cooking and food um, as often as we should. And so what that's doing is creating a little bit of room for people to theorize and to ask the questions like, how did that rice get into South Carolina that the Africans were so proficient in using? And I just think we have to be really careful that we don't further mythalize a community that's already had enough trouble trying to find some stability in the food system by presuming that people did things like um, braid okra or rice seeds in their hair on their way to the slave ship. Like, I, I just think we have to, you know, we need some citations for that. Um, we, we need to be uh, careful that um, in our desire to respect, to um, appreciate, to honor and acknowledge contributions that we are doing so in a very factual way. And so again, that, re that ties me back to, to what, you know, the inspiration I took from Julia, because that's exactly what she did. With mastering, it wasn't just enough to teach cooking, you know, classes to women. She wanted to record it. Well, we are going to come right back and we're going to pick that up because I think it relates to what I want to ask you next about your plans for the grant and how that kind of carries this this forward into the future. So we'll be right back with more from this year's Julia Child Award recipient, food justice warrior and writer Tony Tipton Martin. Stay with us. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking to the 2021 recipient of the Julia Child Award, culinary historian, journalist, cookbook author, soon-to-be PBS personality, and food justice warrior, Tony Tipton Martin. So, Tony, before the break, we were just talking about the intention and specifically how you go on a treasure hunt to unlock what you can about the truth and to also change prevailing historical narratives that were biased or misinformed or deliberately misleading. And I thought that kind of ties in nicely to what you plan to do with the the $50,000 grant that comes with, with the award. Um, so can you tell us about your plans or at least where your plans are at at this point? Um, so my uh, plans are that we are reorienting the 501c3 nonprofit that I founded in 2008 um, as an outreach to underserved families. Um, we're going to reorient that toward young women. Well, let me just say to uh, emerging women writers. We aren't entirely sure that they will all be young. And there's not an age, there's not going to be an age well, restriction, but you're thinking in, of the emerging at whatever age they are. Well, you know, when you say next generation, there's the implication that you mean young. Um, but 
this award is coming to me at a time when I'm still feeling pretty young career-wise. So I really want to be conscious of that. I've been around the industry a really long time, but I took a break in order to um, raise my family. And I'm grateful that I was able to come back and come back this strong. So I don't want to put limitations on who it is that we might be able to inspire. But what I've done is... um, it, as a beginning, um, once I received word that I was a recipient of this amazing award, um, I gathered some of my friends who are among the top female thought leaders in the food world and asked them if they would sit on an advisory committee. And this is a diverse group of women, um, intentionally chosen, frankly, because of um, their approaches to food and culture. Um, their defense of their own personal culture. So we have um, Latina, we have Appalachian, we have Indian, we have um, African-American and women. Um, We have binders of women. (laughs) And we are looking at ways that we can turn my nonprofit, which has always used the idea of role models inspiring the next generation, to um, cultivating conversations between women in the video space, similar to what would have been a seminar or a weekend conference or symposia. But we're going to actually pay women their worth. We're going to pay the speakers. We're going to make sure that the services are accessible Uh, so that you don't have to pay membership fees. We're going to try and tackle as many of the barriers to entry to these types of masterclass sessions as we can. And then what we want to do with those sessions is provide um, tips, hints, tell our struggles, tell our stories, but help the next generation of writers understand what has been accomplished, what struggles we had so that they can carry whatever parts of those tools into their toolbox and, um, and, and be successful uh, in the food media world as it currently exists. So we're aware that, that we, we've accomplished and overcome some systems that don't necessarily exist anymore. Um, but some of them still do. So we want to help people learn things like how to write a cookbook proposal and what you should be looking for in that cookbook contract. It's not just enough to get a big fat advance because you have to understand all of the ways that that is gobbled up and or what it means to actually earn out that that project. So we're going to be looking or at how long they take. And how long even, that might take even when it sounds like a big number, if it takes you four years, it's suddenly a much smaller number. And I've got, <laughs> we've got people on this group who have not ever earned theirs out and they're top sellers. So those are important conversations to have. Um, we want to talk about recipe development and it's, it's expression, um, the way that it's been used to create barriers to entry for some folks. As we were talking about earlier, if you don't have an understanding of the scientific method, then perhaps your recipes are considered weak and you aren't able to really deliver. But maybe it's just a matter of translating those uh, recipes and skills that you have from one language into another. So so we've put together, um, right now we've got about a dozen uh, video themes, and we've got some women in mind to deliver them. We're really excited about that, and we're thinking that sometime in the late spring, uh, we'll be able to announce a sort of online um, women's um, writing symposium. Well, of course, we at the foundation love this, and I just thought this is going to sound like, well, of, of course we're excited about it because, you know, we talked to you, except that the way the the grant with the award works is the only criteria um, that the foundation puts toward to the recipient for the grant is it has to be used in a, a food world nonprofit context. And it needs to be connected to their passions. But of course, we at the foundation have been looking um, for the last decade for 
maybe this isn't the best word, but for lack of a better word, replacement solutions to what used to be the journalistic training for food writers that existed, that with the changes in the publishing world and the digital world, a lot of those opportunities to learn technique, understanding, or to be mentored had have really vanished, if not been significantly reduced. So I think that's a, a, a fantastic and, and very affirming approach to some of the foundation's missions. So we are really looking forward to uh, uh, seeing how that rolls out. Well, and anyone who might, um, you know, think that I contrived this idea um, afterwards, um, I think it's important for people to know that my nonprofit um, was set up as a mentoring and training program. And at the time, the social need was to educate and empower families of um, color that were being marginalized and um uh, disenfranchised in in terms of food insecurity and and health disparities, and that was an important philosophy that we carried on for those first few years. And socially, things have changed so much and so fast that what's been good is that I've been distracted with my own work and the nonprofit sat dormant for a short period. But during that time, I was still meeting with this group of friends asking how we could make an impact using this business. So before there even was a Julia the, the graciousness, graciousness of a Julia Award, we were already in discussion, um, especially having been leaders who were part of the founding of Southern Foodways Alliance and the Appalachian Food Summit and Foodways Texas. Uh, my partner in this, Ronnie Lundy, and I had been at this idea for many, many years, not seeing women represented in the standard organization gatherings and delivery of content and programming. We just couldn't figure out how to do it. And without forcing people with fewer resources to try to come into a town, book hotels and flights and pay for registration fees, like that whole model was an obstacle for us to execute. And so between the Julia Award and frankly, the pandemic and this move to video and Zoom, we've been able to master an idea that we've been, you know, just mulling over and wishing there was a new solution and the solution just dropped right into our laps. It's been really wonderful. I know. I was just thinking it's just like when a good roux comes together. Finally, right? <laughs> it's exactly like that. <laughs> Keep stirring and you have to be patient over very low heat so that it doesn't scorch. And certainly over time, we, have tried our own other alternative ideas. Um, and, and these are, as I said, thought leaders who are authoritative and knowledgeable in their own lanes, but they've put down their egos as we did at Southern Foodways Alliance 20 years ago and see the greater need here um, to empower more women to pursue the stories that I have pursued that have unlocked the freedom that we've been talking about for the broader industry. Well, I think that's so encouraging and exciting uh, to see what what comes out of it. So I want to talk about this new role that is also very, not brand, brand new, but recent, especially since 2019, now that you're the editor-in-chief at Cook's Country, which for those who maybe don't know it that well, is part of the America's Tech Kitchen family. And America's Test Kitchen is uh, possibly maybe best known for publishing Cook's Illustrated, the companion magazine to Cook's Country. But I wanted to ask you, because in some ways, at least to me, and it may be my own ignorance, I think of Cook's Country as this very mainstream heartland kind of publication. And so I wanted to ask you, like, does this represent a new chapter and a new page in your career? Or how do you see it intersecting with the work that the award is recognizing that we've been talking about? Well, I love that question. And yes, um, Heartland is a really accurate 
uh, description. There are uh, others that think about it in terms of more of the word, you know, the perception of the word country as rural, uh, more homespun, um, but certainly not that high intellectual uh, science, scientific cooking and high methodology and technique um, representation that happens at Cooks Illustrated. Um, and so what's really fun to me about um, the title Cooks Country is uh, that we've been actually able to spin those words for, with a new definition. I don't have to change the title of the magazine. I only have to reorient them to focus on the cooks of the country. And in that way, um, my vision for the magazine is to always focus on the people behind the recipes that we love as Americans. What are our favorites and who cooks them? Recipes don't make themselves. Um, there's always a person who's been there um, cooking your favorite brownies, your birthday cake, your favorite dinner. And we often, um, at least in the in the past, the people behind the stories weren't the main focus in our pages. There was a lot more emphasis on technique and method. Um, and the fact that the staff was adapting recipes through their vision um, after testing three or four or five different versions. And what we're going to do now is be more um, transparent about our sources. We're going to be looking for very specific sources to help us um, refine our knowledge about a particular area. For example, in our October-November issue, um, we have a story, uh, our cover story is on smoking your holiday Thanksgiving um, turkey. And most people would not think of, of that as a traditional uh, approach. And they certainly would not see the story behind it tied to pitmaster Rodney Scott as a Cook's Country story, right? We would tend to think more in terms of the standard, beautiful, golden brown centerpiece roasted bird. Um, but this, this dish is amazing. Um, it's delicious. We've got a technique that is unique to Cook's Country, which is cooking on a grill with this charcoal snake. So there is some um, brilliance to it. And there's also a person behind the story um, who was our inspiration. And our staff person still gets to be uh, an essential part of the story as well. So it's my approach to Cook's Country is the same as my approach to to the focus on African-Americans. It is just now, uh, just the fact that now I will be expanding that equity to all American cooks, all of us um, as creators um, and innovators with great stories to tell about our dishes. Yeah, I feel like that breaks down to you're going to give credit where credit is due and recognize that food doesn't cook, cook itself. Those are the two philosophies <laughs> that I started out with, with the team. And I've gradually learned to say it in many different ways. Um, sourcing. Um, we're doing a lot of really fun things, too. Um, anyone who's been a, a reader or a subscriber um, is already in love with some of the personalities that we have. But we want to amplify the past personalities on staff as well. Um, so I'm going to be doing a lot more to grow the team um, and to uh, grow their identities and their visibility and help draw out of them what their areas of interest are um, so that consumers can start to um, follow uh, people that they love for a particular kind of story that they get accustomed to them telling. Um, the, the thought that comes to mind um, is we have an amazing feature um, on our pages called On the Road um, and it is crafted by our executive food editor, Brian Roof. And um, in some ways, it's just a, an expression of traditional journalism in a place where that type of sourcing didn't happen before, um, meaning that he goes out on the road um, to various parts of the country and comes back with a great recipe. Um, it might be butter burgers from Wisconsin. <laughs> it could be slug burgers. Um, you know, it could be... Jamaican rice and peas, right? But he's he's going out and finding these stories and then allowing um, the, the creators to tell us more about their technique and what is unique about what it is that they do. 
And we're well, going to also integrate that onto the TV show. Well, that was my next question, because I wanted to hear, I've said that you're soon to be a PBS personality, um, which I hope is an okay way of saying it, because I don't think the first shows with you um, featuring in them have launched. But can you just tell us about the show and and what new role that you're going to play? So the the new shows have launched. Um, They launched, I think, in September, October. Um, And... um, we have a new segment that we have added to the recipe development and cooking segments. I mean, it's called In the Library. And in some ways it is patterned after In the Kitchen with Julia um, and the Master Chefs series that she did. Um, we're in my library in my home where my cookbooks live. And um, I use my cookbooks as a jump off point to talk about one aspect of a recipe that we're uh, featuring on the, on the show. Um, and so th- this will be where you learn the history behind a particular dish. Previously, they would certainly mention very quickly that Eugene Gagliardi was the creator of popcorn chicken. And then they would swiftly move into the recipe development and start talking about the type of part of the meat that was chosen or or the breading that was preferred and the seasoning and so on. Um, but what we will be doing here is moving more of that conversation about the recipe, its origins, its history, um, any fun facts that we can share. Um, those will all take place in my library and I will be the one to deliver those. And um, so is that is that segment in every episode or how often uh, will does it come up in the series? It's in every episode so far. How great. And uh, where can people watch it? Um, you can watch on your local public television station. Um, Cook's Country TV and America's Test Kitchen TV run back to back on Saturday afternoons. And you can check your local listings and find us there. All right. Well, we'll check it out. And after the break, we're going to hear Tony's second Julia moment. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf, and let us know what you think about today's show. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's so good. She's so good. From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. We've already talked a lot about that. You've given us a Julia moment before, so we're really putting the screws to you, Tony, to asking you for a second official Julia moment. Go for it. Well, I can tell you that there's no screws because I have several. Okay. Um, (laughs) And um, as I said earlier, I didn't grow up initially um, studying Julia, but once I found her, um, I actually did study her ways. And we heard the kinds of things that she would say to encourage people to develop their courage. And one of the quotes that I really loved was the way that she taught without being overbearing. Um, In one case, she was focusing on the importance of making diced vegetables. Um, She wanted them to be pretty and she wanted them to be um, precise and uniform. And so um, in her instruction to us as cooks, She said that when we trimmed the ends of the vegetables away, we shouldn't worry about those being um, discarded. Those were for the cook. And for the rest of my career and to this day, every time I chop a bell pepper or celery or any fresh vegetable that I'm trimming, I always nibble those ends. And I think about her in the way that one might hold a toast to honor someone's memory. It's those trims, those vegetable ends that are trimmed that she uh, talked about in um, teaching us how to be better cooks. Oh, I love that. I've never heard that before. I, uh, that's, that's a great one. You have, 
you have definitely now provided a second exemplary and memorable Julia moment. Thank you very much, Tony. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us. It's been great to have you back and uh, great to go through this journey um, for being the seventh recipient of the Julia Child Award with you. I'm so honored by um, the award, but also by your invitation, inviting me to come back. And I thank you so, so much um, for this acknowledgement of my work and support. Our sincere pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To keep up with Tony, it's at Tony Tipton Martin on Facebook and Instagram and at The Jemima Code on Twitter. For more on her work, books, and her plans for the Julia Child Award grant program, you can check out TonyTiptonMartin.com. And for more from America's Test Kitchen, it's at America's Test Kitchen and at Cook's Country on Facebook, at Cook's Country, and at Test Kitchen on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to learn more about the Julia Child Award itself and its past recipients, go to juliachildaward.com. And to watch the presentation of this year's Julia Child Award to Tony Tipton Martin at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History on November 4th, make sure you're following the foundation. We'll post when it's ready to watch. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. You'll also want to keep an eye out to register for the museum's virtual program featuring Tony in conversation with Alilia Bundles, Padma Lakshmi, and Sandra Gutierrez on November 12th. The Julia Child Award clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH, thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>